this episode of Theology for the People, I speak with Aaron Damiani. Aaron is a pastor and the author of the book, Earth Filled with Heaven, Finding Life in Liturgy, Sacraments, and Other Ancient Practices of the Church. In this episode, Aaron and I discuss some of the practices that Christians have traditionally done in their worship services and how Christians today can benefit from incorporating some of those formative practices. Additionally, we discuss some of the pitfalls or potential downsides of a liturgical approach to worship and discipleship, and some ways that high church and low church Protestants can learn from each other in order to come to an intentional order of service which helps develop healthy disciples of Jesus. Here's the episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. I'm joined today by Aaron Damiani. Is that how you pronounce your name? It is. Well done. Okay, cool. I'm glad. Aaron recently wrote a book called Earth Filled with Heaven, and I got connected with him through Moody Publishers, and so I'm excited to talk with you today. Aaron, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, where you serve, all that good stuff. So I live in Chicago in a Northwest neighborhood with my wife and four kids, and I pastor a church called Emanuel Anglican Church, which is in Chicago's uptown neighborhood. We've been here for about 10 years, and so... I grew up in Ohio. I grew up actually low church evangelical, and my my journey to becoming Anglican actually started at Moody Bible Institute. So interesting, yeah, yeah. That's in, maybe you could define for people like what do you mean when you say low church versus high church? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't love those terms, low church and high church. But essentially, you know, low church is going to be more focused on a sort of worship service that is very much word-based and word-focused. And high church is going to have more of an emphasis on word and sacrament. And along with that, there's going to be more emphasis on involving the body, the the visuals, as well as the the rituals that involve the body and the the call and response that involves something that where you're joining your voices with other people. So Traditionally, low church has been more of the the Zwingli and maybe even Luther side of the Reformation, and high church is going to be more more Calvin, some Luther, as well as of course the Roman Catholic and Orthodox Church that has a lot of visuals, has a lot of liturgy, and has a very high view of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean I know the Anglican Church which you're a part of, kind of goes both ways, right? They they swing both ways. They're kind of the via media, right? The, yes. The, the middle way. So just for, for you to know, I did my, my bachelor's and my master's in the UK at universities, which were, I guess, primarily, especially my undergrad was a state university, so the University of Gloucestershire. And so the head of the university was actually the Bishop of Gloucester, who's of course Anglican. But, you know, Anglicans definitely view themselves as kind of like a big tent, in my experience, like in England. Yes. And so, you know, you got everything from low church Anglicans, high church Anglicans, Anglo-Catholics, Pentecostal Anglicans, yes. all that stuff. So yeah. And you know, I know that a lot of my friends have gotten involved in in some Anglican things lately. Why do you think that is that the Anglican church has has become quite popular in the United States? It's a bit of a mystery to me. And I, I think a big part of it is just the Lord chooses to use different Christians and churches at different times in history to to carry out his plan, and none of us can claim credit for that. So, but I do think there's something of, around the the beauty of Anglicanism that people are longing for. That we're in an age where beauty actually is a very significant apologetic for the gospel, 
it's also something that satisfies the human heart. And if you have all truth but no beauty, then your soul's going to dry up. I think that might be one reason. There's also another strange reason, which is that Anglicans right now are pretty focused on mission and pretty focused on church planting. And so there's a lot of new Anglican churches sprouting up across the United States. I think that's overall a pretty good thing. And whenever there's a new church, there's going to be this come and see, you know, that John 1 invitation. Come and see what the Lord is doing. He's doing something new. There's usually some some new life and energy. And so I think even just on the sort of the shoe leather invitational side, there's more Anglican churches to go to now hmm. that are preaching the gospel and featuring the sacraments. And just for our listeners' sake, I mean, would how would you differentiate the Episcopal Church from the Anglican Church? You know, the biggest difference, I'd say, is just in our view of Scripture and our, our way of interacting with the the Apostles' Creed and, and, the, and the Scripture. And I, I really, you know, have no animus or ill will towards any Episcopalians. My best understanding of the Episcopal Church in the United States is that in an effort to, to maintain a broad tent, there's been some sort of over-adaptation to the cultural moment and under-adaptation to the scriptural revelation of who God is and the, the, the way of Jesus. And so the Anglican churches, the Anglican church in North America and, you know, conservative Anglican groups are going to adhere more to the plain interpretation of what scripture is teaching us about, about, about God, the gospel, and the way of Jesus. And the Episcopal church is going to have some of that, and it's going to also have those who, who choose to, to go a different way. So that'd be the biggest difference, I would say, in the United States. Right. Okay. Well, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your journey. You said you grew up low church evangelical. I'll tell you, you know, just for your your knowledge and our listeners, I had kind of the opposite journey, right? So I grew mm. up high church Lutheran and then came to low church evangelicalism as a teenager and been very involved with with that. But I'm also part of a group of churches that gives us a ton of freedom. And so there are a lot of, actually our church has some liturgical elements and, you know, sometimes people have questioned us about that. And I know some of my friends, even in the same network of churches, perhaps even have a more liturgical elements. And so first of all, maybe define what we mean by liturgy, sacraments, what are liturgical elements, and then maybe some of your journey in that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I'd, essential definition of liturgy is the work of the people. And I like my friend Trevor says, you know, liturgy is the work of the people that works on the people. So it's anything that we do with our bodies that shapes our souls. And that could be swiping right on your phone, or it could be holding hands with your brothers and sisters in your small group and praying the Lord's Prayer together. Both of those things are going to shape your soul. And we're, we're doing things with our bodies every day that shape what James K.A. Smith says, it shapes what we love, shapes what we desire, shapes who we become. So liturgy is going to be, hopefully, based on scripture, it's going to contain a lot of scripture. In liturgical churches that celebrate Jesus, you're going to find yourself singing, praying, and moving according to scripture so that you memorize it. You don't even know you're memorizing it, but you're memorizing these classic texts because you're speaking them, singing them. Sacraments are something that are a you know, Augustine defined them as something that's like an outward invisible sign of an invisible grace. And the sacraments as classically defined are, are the Eucharist, otherwise known as the Lord's Supper and baptism. And those are 
they're, they're visible signs of something that is true of Jesus, which is that he brings God's grace so near. It's actually closer than the water on the skin or the wine and the bread in the mouth. For me, that was a really essential thing. I mean, it's so basic. It's, we sometimes can get, have a hard time even believing it's true because it's so basic. But for me, I was in a state, I was ripe, ripe for deconstruction as a college student. I had a great freshman year and then my sophomore year, a close friend, her father committed suicide. It was a really troubling experience for me, obviously more for her than for me. But from my perspective, it was like, I've never heard of Christians doing this. What's happening? And then we were going to a mega church at the time where there was really no space for lament, no space for, for deep grieving. And there was a lot of expectations for happiness, for joy. That's what it means to be close to God. If you really believe the gospel, you would feel these certain boilerplate emotions that are positive, unless you're repenting of your sins. And in that case, you're going to feel guilty. So at that time, I was also doubting my faith. I was, you know, studying theology. I was studying the scriptures. I was really wrestling with how the scriptures were put together, what they said about Jesus, the historical record. I was trying to square that with my own prayer life, and those two things were disconnected for a while. So I didn't even know what I believed about God. I was confused. And then the kicker was I was just burning out of my first ministry role, and I was laboring under a lot of responsibility, trying to make things happen, trying to make do something great for God and please Him, and was running out of gas. And so those three things together, I couldn't feel my way to God. I couldn't think my way to God, and I couldn't serve my way to God. And those were the three pathways I had come to know, as this is how you commune with the Lord, is through your feelings, thoughts, and service. I was burned out, and I was needing a break and grieving. And so what does it mean to be in communion with the Lord when you're in that state? So a friend of mine invited me to a a Presbyterian church, which featured both the preached Word of God as well as the sacraments. And For me, just the fact that I could come into a church and receive prayers, I didn't have to generate them. The fact that I could receive and participate in practices that were older than a couple generations was very stabilizing. And then I think just the fact that the sacraments were something that I could participate in regardless of how I felt and what I was thinking, it was like putting on those glasses. If you've seen videos of people who are colorblind, they put on these corrective glasses and they see the world for the first time as it is with the dazzling color and just it 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 overwhelms them with a sense of things were so beautiful I had no idea and for me what the sacraments were was it helped me see for the first time how close Jesus had always been to me even when I was in the state I was in and I learned to love the church again and so that 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 actually carries me through to this day my ministry writing I have a heart for those who are in a spot where they, they're maybe tempted to deconstruct. They don't want to. And there's a way to get a new vision of Christ in his church. It's simple. It's beautiful. And that's what the book's about. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah, maybe you could speak to that specifically. How does you know high church liturgy potentially help someone who is facing deconstruction? Well, I think the first thing is it just takes some of the pressure off of the individual to construct their own way of thinking about the Lord and, and his church. It connects you with a global and historic church. Trevin Wax talks about de-enculturation being a better word than deconstruction. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have, in every culture, there's things that are really not biblical, 
about our faith. It's just more culture and it's off-putting and in many cases unhelpful. Well, if you look to the historic and global church, which you know you could say high church or liturgical churches do, you can actually receive and be connected to the body of Christ that is deeper and um, more satisfying than a very narrow experience of, of Jesus. I think the other thing that it does is it's like that tree. You think about a tree in, harsh, in a harsh climate where the tree is actually going to have to send its roots deeper to get to the water source so that it can continue to bear fruit and continue to generate beautiful leaves. And I think right now it's just getting harder to be a Christian. Right now the cultural support for following Jesus is starting to evaporate. And so I just find that we're going to need deeper resources, rhythms, patterns, and stories even of the early church to sustain us in the coming days. And that's where, yeah, the sacraments, liturgy, and the historic practices of the church really do provide that nourishment. Really, it comes from Jesus, and these really are a a time-tested way of delivering them. Which ancient practices of the church do you think are most neglected in, let's say, low church evangelicalism today? Well, I guess the one that comes to mind, and I don't mean this as an offense to anybody, but it is... It's something that is a surprise to me for low church evangelicals, and that is just the public reading of scripture. This is one of the most ancient practices of the church. You can read about it in Paul's letter to Timothy, don't neglect the public reading of scripture. And you actually see it, you see it in the earliest liturgies of the church. If you look at those, if you can also see it in the Reformation, even, even the lowest of the low church, Zwingli himself, kept it in his liturgy. And yet today, among low church evangelicals, I find that that's where the least amount of public reading of scripture is happening. And sometimes that's because we have a high view of the sermon, expository preaching, which I do as well. I I spend my best efforts actually writing sermons, studying God's word. I believe in it. And yet somehow the sermon about the scriptures has edged out the reading of scriptures itself. And that's the one to my... from my perspective, that seems to be the most glaring omission of low church evangelicals from the ancient treasures of the church is, is the scriptures of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, when we talk low church evangelicalism, I guess that's a pretty broad spectrum of, of churches, isn't it? I mean, and, and, you know, there's no one set, I guess, order of service, if we don't want to use the word liturgy to speak about what they do in their services. Because, I mean, I can think of many who do, and I think that mm. that... That also seems like something that could be pretty easily corrected, right? Like, yes. Like oh, yeah. it would be a, hey, you should do more public reading of scripture. Okay. Like it yeah. doesn't seem that hard to add in. Right. My low church evangelical friends, I think, would agree. And by the way, this is what I've heard a lot from people who have a high church, you know, liturgical inclination is that they say, this is the strength of high church. You know, if you would say that faith comes by hearing the word of God and then wouldn't you want people to hear the word of God? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I've heard that as being, you know, the, the, one of the big positives that people yes. say about liturgical worship. You know, you hear a lot of scripture read without just explanation. I, I think at worst, expository preaching, right, it can become just someone giving their opinion or telling stories, trying to make it seem interesting. That would be at its worst. I'd say at its best, it should be much more than that. 
like you said, yes. it's something you do as well. It's it's exposing people to the Word of God, helping them to understand it in its context and in, in its full power. So, yeah, no, that's really good. Now, what I was hoping to do was maybe just have a discussion about yes. maybe some pushbacks that some people might give who hear this and they say, okay, liturgy, you, maybe they just don't mm-hmm. like it, first of all. And maybe, maybe it's because they haven't experienced it in a good way, or maybe it's because they grew up and experienced it and they came away from it with certain maybe assumptions or experiences. So let's, I, I'd give you a few of those. And I think that I don't want this to come across as me criticizing. Rather, you give it, you getting a chance to respond to some of these things that people might say or ask. So the first one I would give you is, okay, you've told us about some of the benefits of liturgy. What would you Mm -hmm. say are the best arguments against high church liturgy? One legitimate argument against it is that liturgy can substitute for the individual responsibility to present themselves before God and that you actually let the, the words just flow through you, but you stop bringing your heart, you stop bringing your mind, all of those things which are actually good, and that you're substituting really truly can become dead religion, mm-hmm. and it can substitute for repentance. Alongside that, I think there is, I, I believe in the new birth, I believe in conversion, and there is a way in which high church ministry can present itself to the degree that, hey, you don't actually need to have a converted heart. You don't need to be cut to the quick and say, what must I do to be saved? Because all you have to do is enter these you know, formalities and, and go through the motions. And you're in, in some ways, you know, you're putting your quarter in the machine. You're ticking the box. This is just one thing that you're doing to make God happy rather than coming to him and, and communing with him face to face. So I think that it can be a little bit of a you know, bubble wrapping to some degree for those who want something that is predictable, something that is easy, something that they know what's coming and they know how it's going to end. And um, I think anything good can can get corrupted. And then maybe the final piece of that is just the legalism and the the way that pride and beauty can actually coexist in a really twisted way. We can actually take these things that are meant to be a means of grace, as they've always been understood, and actually look at them as, now I'm better than you, because you don't have this beautiful tradition, and you don't have these liturgies. And there can be a contempt and a looking down upon and a comparison with those who love Jesus but don't love the ancient practices. And all of these are really pernicious ways that that liturgy can become counterproductive rather than bringing us into the presence of God. So what would be your antidote for that? I mean, what, what would you say in response to that? Well, I mean, one thing I would say is that liturgy is not a panacea for your discipleship. That actually, if you don't have people that you're confessing your sins to, if if there's no sense that you're growing in Christ, that you're being refreshed by him— and you're not asking people in your life what your blind spots are. And you're not actually like examining, am I actually following Jesus right now? Then, then liturgy can become you know, one of those things that is substituting for actually communion with Jesus. That's the ironic thing, actually, as a pastor that I see all the time, whether it's high church stuff or whether it's theology or whether even expository preaching, even ministry— 
is that these things can itself substitute for. In fact, sometimes it makes it harder for the Lord to speak to you because you are just assuming that because you are saying the right words, pleasing those in authority and staying effectively hidden. So there's gotta, there has to be the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. There has to be the presence of people who actually know you and can encourage you. And everything else that we need in our life, healthy relationships, our own personal relationship with God, these things are vital. I mean, for what it's worth, and I don't know how your listeners feel about this, but you know, we run the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course here. And in that course, I talk about liturgy. I just say, so for some of you, being sacramental is actually going to be a hindrance for you because there's certain things about the way that you're shaped that you don't want to see. And being silent before God is difficult. Waiting on God is difficult. Seeing your blind spots is difficult. There are ways, though, to keep both. I think, I think that's, that's what I want to do in my own life and soul. That's what I want to see happen in our church is that actually both can coexist and reinforce one another so that spiritual maturity, emotional health, liturgical practices, these can all be mutually reinforcing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, just as you as we were talking a moment ago about maybe things that are neglected in low church evangelicalism, you know, I think like you're saying, you recognize the potential pitfalls of a liturgical system. I think that somebody who's ingrained in like a low church evangelicalism you know, if they're really honest, they should be able to see the pitfalls in that system as well. And the one that I see that I think high church event or high church, you know, worship tends to do well is the confession of sins and lament. So those two things, right? That they're that those are actually like there's systems in place for doing those and doing them well. I think that, like you're saying, an ex- an expectation in that low church setting you were in before was just kind of like. Uh, having a lot of joy, you know, expressing it all the time and and that that that's pressure sometimes. And I think that also, you know, there needs to be a place for confessing of sins. There needs to be a place for lament at times and words, you know, thoughtfully put into place around that. I think that's good. You know, I I I wonder as we talk like how much it sounds like as you see perhaps some of the shortfalls, potential shortfalls of high church worship. And, you know, as those involved in low church worship can see the pitfalls of those, I wonder how much you think, could there be a synthesis of that? Like I said, like we we are a church which focuses primarily on expository preaching and probably emotionally driven worship. And yet we do try to incorporate some of these things, right? We do have public reading of scripture. We have calls to worship, sometimes even responsive. I'm not sure if they would be called readings or prayers, but we do responsive things. We do some things like this. We do pastoral prayers, things like that, just to realize that there are some areas where we could benefit. And so, so what do you think about that? I mean, is there room for synthesis and what does that look like? Absolutely. I mean, what you just described, Nick, is really beautiful and compelling to me. I mean, I would love to go to one of your worship services and and participate in that and experience that. So there's a there's a way in which we can really celebrate the the diversity of you know what it looks like to to follow Jesus and express our worship of Him in different settings, traditions, parts of the country, putting Jesus at the center and trusting the Scriptures will are authoritative. And we really seek to do that as well, you know, at our church. So bringing together joy and reverence. Mm. If you look at different, you know, experiences that we have as human beings, joy and reverence belong together. 
and as do habit and expressiveness. So for me, you know, one silly example is just the Chicago Cubs have this hokey song, Go Cubs Go, and it's sung every time the Cubs win. If you're at Wrigley Field, you stand up and you you sing this song that was, I don't know, cut maybe 30 years ago and stuff. And so I've done that, I don't know how many times, but my favorite time doing that was when the Cubs won the World Series back in the fall of 2016. And we lived at that time not far from Wrigley Field, and I just put on my running shoes and, and just started high-fiving people in the neighborhood. And we you know, went down Addison Avenue, and w we were singing most of the time. It was like the song Go Cubs Go could be heard from car stereos, from vans, from apartment buildings. It was blaring. And we were singing it as loud as we could, and it was so much fun. And maybe a less silly example is a wedding where everyone stands when the bride walks in. And this is not, this is a formal thing, but there's so much joy and so much meaning flowing through that, that, that we could even call it a liturgical movement. I think sometimes liturgy can be at its best, a really good repository for joy, mm. a way to express joy. And I think we want to be able to express joy and lament. And it's, it's, there's a way to do it. There's a way to lead it. I think from a, as a pastor, the way that we engage the liturgy, whatever our specific tradition is, is really going to set the tone. Mm. And so if it starts with us, it, it can really be given as a gift to the congregation. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it said, and I've used this phrase, I even used it this past weekend. We had a men's conference. I told them, you know, some people are, are so negative about going through the motions, but that really only is bad if you're going through the wrong motions. We're all going right. through motions, right? We all have habits. Like, why not be thoughtful about them? Why not you know, do these things which you believe over time will lead you to a particular destination or form you into a certain kind of person. Yes. So I think, th so what would you say to this, that, you know, a lot of low church evangelical people might just push back and say, hey, everybody has a liturgy of one kind or another, whatever they might call it. I liked your definition, calling it the work of the people. But some people might say, hey, you know, the, the most wild, unpredictable Pentecostal church has a liturgy as well. Their liturgy is, we have no plan, and we're just going to see what happens this weekend. What, what would you say, how would you differentiate that? I mean, I would agree with them. Everybody has a liturgy. Everyone has a form. And so we might as well take a look at the liturgies that we use and the forms that we have and go, is this shaping us to love to love God and love his people? And is it getting scripture into our bloodstream? So I, th I think that's a, a wonderful insight. And sometimes it's going to be boring, even though it doesn't feel good in the moment to do the motion, to, to speak the liturgy to maybe get on your knees and confess your sins, just because it doesn't feel good in the moment doesn't mean that it's good for you. Mm -hmm. So I think about Andy Crouch's, he makes a distinction, distinction between tools and technology. Technology always works automatically. It feels good to, to use technology. On the other hand, tools require something of you. They really make you exercise your humanity to, to be able to master it. If you wanna to learn to play the cello, you're going to have to endure a lot of boring moments and hours and go through the motions. But that's not bad. That's actually bringing out the best in you so that you can create something that is stunning and beautiful and rich. And over time, actually, you enjoy it more. So just because liturgy feels maybe like a little bit of work or, or something that's too repetitive going through the motions in the moment 
doesn't mean that it's not calling out the best in us to to glorify God and, and serve his people. Okay, so I've got two questions that I think are maybe, you know, ones that, I don't know, I think they're pretty good pushbacks against a liturgical system, and here's here's what they are, and I want to hear your responses. So mm. here's here's the biggest one that comes to mind. I've heard, you know, the ones that you brought up about, like, rote, mindless repetition. I think you've give, given great answers to that. But how about this? If a liturgical system of worship works so well in helping, you know, with deconstruction, perhaps, then, you know, if it's a good way of discipleship and a good way of passing on the faith to the next generations, like pragmatically, why is it that many liturgical churches have become theologically liberal? Mm. And why is it that they've had, you know, mass exoduses from their churches? I mean, Mm. is that, does that speak to the deficiencies of a liturgical worship or is it something else? It's a great question and one that I think about, you know, as I raise my own kids and see others coming up in the faith and, you know, we're here in the city where the, the, the cultural pressures are pretty intense. And so I, these are, it's a, it's a question that goes down to the, to the heart and and the soul for me, what I pray for the next generation. So I think that no matter what your style of worship is at the end of the day, you need to have leaders with guts Mm. and there's no substitute for that. There's no substitute for somebody who is both humble and courageous who can define reality and say, here I, here I stand, I can do no other. Not in an obnoxious way, not in an abusive way, but in a way that is calm and pointing to the principle that we hold as evangelical Christians, that the word of God is our authority and Jesus Christ is our Lord. And so even if it means suffering and even if it means setback, there, there's going to be a cost paid by the leader first and by the people second. And so there's got to be also a, like when we are preaching, we are um, shaping reality. We're not the ones shaping it, but we are pointing to how God shapes reality. And there is no substitute for solid theological depth, substance, and guts when it comes to the way of Jesus. So if a church does not have a leader with that, with those guts and with that humility and that, that willingness to shepherd, there's going to be a theological drift. And I think we're seeing it honestly in, in non-liturgical churches as well. And sure. so it's, it's, it's certainly not foolproof though, though it does, I, I think it can help in that regard, but you are right to say that there are plenty of people reciting the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, whole, you know, crossing their fingers and it's a tragedy. Mm. Yeah, so are you saying that it comes down more to leadership than it does perhaps to style of worship or what? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's a there's a interplay between those two things, but that, you know, just like God chooses you know, movements to 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 carry out his plan in the world, also any movement is capable of losing its spiritual core its heart for God, its Mm. theological center and moorings. But I do think that when you look at the global church, liturgical churches are holding pretty strong. So, and, and as I see it right now, going liturgical is the zig to the cultural zag of theological decay in in a deconstruction that actually what we're doing is we're rooting ourselves in, in truth. We're, and we're rooting ourselves in beauty as well, 
but we're linking arms with those Christians from around the world, Nigeria, Rwanda, as well as South America, Brazil, and other parts of the world that are holding on to Jesus, and we are bound with them through him, through Jesus, but also we are bound with them with, with liturgy as well. They're really, I think, showing the way for mm-hmm. what, you know, theological depth, faithfulness to Christ, and liturgical sacramental worship, all of those things. They're holding all those things together really well. I think we can follow their lead. Yeah, that's really good. All right, here's my next and perhaps last question, but it's, you know, Cranmer's liturgy is beautiful, mm-hmm. but yes. it is also, in a way, it's a product of a certain period of European history. Mm-hmm. So where does contextualization fit into this? I mean, you've mentioned South America, Africa, other parts mm-hmm. of the world. Where does contextualization for the local church expression come in, not just using one set liturgy? I mean, is there, mm-hmm. is there room for that? Where does that cultural contextualization fit in this? Oh, it absolutely fits in, and there does need to be adaptation. I mean, I think one of the things that happens in Africa for the for the offertory in some countries is actually the offertory is when they bring in their livestock. And so, you know, whereas in our culture, people are giving online and very few people even have cash anymore. And so <laughs> the way that we're caring about this liturgy is going to be different. But also there are new, and this is a very surprising, interesting thing, but I see it in my own church Liturgical churches make space for creativity, and that creativity flows back into the liturgy. So key example of that is the Kenyan blessing that we use at Eastertide. This is developed in Kenya, where there's so much, uh, uh, there's so much occult activity, curse, generational curses, and the Anglican Church actually developed a liturgy that goes somewhat like this. All our problems of this life on earth, we sent the cross of Christ, and people actually extend their hands toward the physical cross as a way, as a sacramental, as it were, small s, way to part, you know, send, send any curses their way. Even all the devil's works from his temporary power, we send to the cross of Christ. All our, you know, all of our suffering, we send to the cross of Christ. And then when that's done, the leader says, and all of our hopes for wholeness and eternal life, and everyone lifts up both of their hands as the ancient church did when they prayed. Mm-hmm. And they say together, we set on the risen Christ. Mm-hmm. And then there's a blessing. May Christ, the son of righteousness, shine upon you, scatter the darkness from before your path. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you now and always. And you can just imagine people who are fighting the, de- the world, the flesh, and the devil every day in, in Kenya and other places in Africa where spiritual warfare is much more present, that they're carrying that 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 blessing and that liturgical movement with them through the rest of the week well it's a wonderful thing we can we can take this beautiful creative biblical contextualized piece of liturgy and use it here in the United States and so i think there's cranmer definitely did his fair share of at, uh, adapting but he was also in a poetic theological way connected with the early church and with people like saint patrick and and others and we can be as both rooted and creative as he was as we find our own adaptation of the liturgy. Cool. So I have this hypothesis. I'm curious what you think of it. Here's, here's my hypothesis. 
you know, myself having come from a high church background, I didn't really come, I would say I did not come to robust living faith until I got into a really, you know, expository preaching focused low church setting. But as I did that, what allowed me to really thrive perhaps in that low church setting where it was focused on long form exposition, what really helped me to thrive is that I had a background in the the core doctrines and in the creeds and things like that from the high church setting. Conversely, I wonder now some of my friends who I see are kind of like, I guess, liturgical, bi-curious, if you will, right? Where they're like... Anglo-curious. Yeah. They're, I think a lot of that is the reason they appreciate it is because they've had a foundation in, you know, long form exposition that through which they learned a lot of things. So, I mean, I wonder how much do you think that that plays into it? And and I'll just give you one quick example. Uh, Justin Holcomb, are you familiar with Justin? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, Justin came from the same background that I'm now part of, which is Calvary mm-hmm. Chapel, really focused on verse-by-verse teaching. And so, Justin, that was his, that was his initial foray into <laughs> Christianity. And then he ends up becoming, I think he's now uh, an Episcopal priest, And so I listened to, on our sister podcast, The Expositors Collective, they had him on, and Justin was talking about how he says, you know, the benefit of this form of liturgical worship, there's a lot of just raw scripture readings. But then later on in the episode, he said that his wife works with trauma victims, and Mm. that the best thing for trauma victims is long-form, verse-by-verse, systematic teaching and explanation of the Bible. Mm. Wow! And so it seems that these things, you know, there's room for both, and that they they can both be useful. So, I mean, where do you see that? all coming together. Maybe you could tie a bow around that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think in in an ideal world, we would see we would see th- three primary things coming together. We would see the scriptures, we would see the sacrament, and we would and you know, with that the historic church liturgy and all that. And then we would see the Holy Spirit. I mean, the presence of God animating these things and helping us to to see Jesus through all of these things and less of it being one wins out it's more of a dynamic dance between between the three with with scripture really defining reality and sacraments supporting that and the holy spirit exalting Jesus as he that's his job is to is to is to exalt Jesus and the father and so if if these things were coming together in a way that was also sacrificial, if it was pointing us to a, 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 a discipleship model. And then one of the things we're learning is, you know, if, if we lose our zeal and passion for evangelism, then we're going to lose our heart as a, as a movement. And so um, there's got to be a missional side of it as well. So I do think that whether you're an evangelical church that uses some liturgy in a way to, to, to strengthen your worship, or whether you're a liturgical church that is going to place a strong emphasis on expository preaching that exalts Jesus, we're going to be pointing in the same direction, and and we're going to need each other for, I think, the days ahead to to strengthen one another for, you know, the Lord meeting us in a, in a time of, of great change and upheaval. Hmm. That's good. So just in wrapping up, could you tell our listeners about your book and where they can find it? Yes, it's called Earth Filled with Heaven, Finding Life in Liturgy, Sacraments, and Other Ancient Practices of the Church. So you can get it wherever books are sold, Moody Publishers, Amazon, 
and Christian book distributors, Earth Filled with Heaven. And it's essentially, it's for people from a low church background, I wrote this to help them understand the appeal as well as how to practice liturgy and just included a lot of stories from church history and from, from our church as well and tried to address some of those misconceptions and show show the vision behind it in a way that would be accessible and 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 usable if you st- hopefully stay in your low church you know ecclesial home and just draw from these gifts of the of the church to to strengthen what you're already doing awesome hey thanks so much Aaron really appreciate your time thank you so much Nick it's been great Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. Stay tuned for future episodes in the weeks to come. If you benefited from this episode or any of the other episodes on this podcast, I would be honored if you would share it with others. And if you would like to help the podcast succeed, the best way to do that is by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, God bless you.